This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 19 of Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. In today's episode, I'll be discussing dealing with narcissists and other difficult people, identifying and navigating people with personality disorders in your life. Most people presume that everyone else they know or encounter is basically normal. But human beings are far more interesting than that. Personality disorders are traits in people that make them think, feel and behave in a particular way, usually with a negative effect either to themselves, others or both. Personality disorders are more than your average bad moods or habits and they are quite common. Scientists have studied this since the early 1800s, but surprisingly, while we know much about these disorders, we still don't know definitively what causes them. For my duty of care, the themes and topics I'm about to discuss may be very triggering for some people. If you think you could be affected by this podcast, please make sure you press pause and think carefully before listening to this recording. If you decide to proceed, please make sure you have support and a health professional you can speak with later if needed. So why is personality disorder an important thing for us to discuss? Because even though the difficult person you're dealing with may not be a murderer or a psychopath, disordered personalities are difficult and they can cause tremendous harm in all areas of our lives. They can disrupt our mental and financial health, our relationships and families, our careers and all other areas of our lives. Because the risks they pose are real, like any risk in life, it's smarter to be aware and be able to protect ourselves than not. We need to know how to identify whether someone has a personality disorder, how to deal with it to minimise the disruption and potential damage in our lives. It's the family member who's always causing fights, problems or dramas. It's that person who can't make decisions, constantly worries, obsessively tidies the house or is a hoarder. It's that co-worker who makes you feel small, afraid or put down. It's the supervisor who tells you, come on, be a team player when they're giving your work project to someone else just as you're about to gain the recognition for it. It's the romantic partner who keeps lying, breaking your trust and making you feel stupid and insecure. Unfortunately, personality disorder is quite a common part of our personal, family, work and social lives. It's a severe health issue. Studies show that the prevalence is very high in clinical or hospital settings, as you'd expect, but research shows it's also fairly high in the general community. In our lives, we may not be able to change these people with personality disorders, but we can change how we deal with them. Their negative traits, particularly those of narcissists, who, in the worst cases, can be completely selfish, lack empathy and are often cruel, can be a burden, destroy our self-confidence, burn us out, and at their worst, cause suicidal thoughts and behaviours in others. At first it can be very confusing, frustrating, even frightening and painful to learn how to deal with these people. But once you've identified, understood, accepted, practiced and learned how to deal with this, it can actually become very easy to deal with and certainly empowering and liberating. 
Finally, you'll know that wherever you may encounter such a person over the course of your life, you'll be able to deal with them and protect yourself. So what's the science behind personality and personality disorders? The way our personalities develop is complex and considered most likely to be caused by a combination of factors. First, nature, which is our genetics or inherited characteristics, combined with the influences of nurture, meaning how and where we were raised. Second, our neurobiology or the connections in our brain and nervous system also contributes in forming our personalities. Personality development is still somewhat of a mystery. The American Psychiatric Association says the essential features of a personality disorder are impairments in personal functioning, that is, in themselves and with others, and the presence of pathological or diseased personality traits. Personality disorders are characterised by an enduring pattern of inner experience and outer behaviours that's markedly different from the expectations of others or the related culture. These people have pervasive and long-standing traits or characteristics that affect their perception, cognition, emotions and behaviour, as well as their ability to function in interpersonal or other social roles. Rigidity or being stuck is a hallmark of personality disorder. Those of us with normal personality are fairly flexible and can adapt to a variety of situations, people and events. But people with a personality disorder tend to be stuck in rigid ways of thinking, living, working and relating to people and events. It affects how they experience emotion and how well they control their impulses. It's important to understand that some people may have traits, but not a full personality disorder. For instance, people can be a bit narcissistic or a bit obsessive-compulsive. Personality disorders are grouped into three clusters, A, B and C. Cluster A is known colloquially as odd to eccentric, and it includes paranoid, schizoid and schizotypal personalities. Cluster B is known as dramatic to emotional and includes antisocial, borderline, histrionic and narcissistic people. Cluster C, known as anxious to fearful, includes avoidant, dependent and obsessive-compulsive personalities. Personalities are grouped this way because some people have traits of more than one of the disorders within a cluster. In this case, we might not be able to say that a person is a narcissist, for example, but we might be able to say they have many traits in cluster B. This would instantly identify the person's character in what ways they're disordered and difficult to deal with. It's also commonly known as a mixed personality disorder. Although it is common for people to have more than one full disorder within a cluster, for instance, think of a person who's dependent in one area of life, yet avoidant in another. They may be an adult still relying heavily on their parents or partner, yet avoiding other normal social relationships or work appropriate as a responsible adult. As people with personality disorders or traits age, they often develop more of these traits, while in other cases some traits decline with age. For instance, people with a borderline personality disorder have intense emotional instability that damages relationships. But often as they enter their 40s, this can begin to decline. So how common is personality disorder? The World 
Health Organization has shown that personality disorders are significantly elevated among men. A comprehensive study in the British Journal of Psychiatry in 2018 by researchers Volkert, Gablonski and Rabung found that personality disorder has a fairly high prevalence in the general community. It's astonishing to read that epidemiological or disease occurrence studies on personality disorders in the community are rare compared with studies on other mental disorders. Indeed, this study in 2018 was the first meta-analysis on prevalence in the community, which I found quite shocking. The researchers' final sample comprised 10 studies across seven countries in the Western world, with almost 114,000 individuals. Just over 12% had a personality disorder, which they considered a fairly high rate. Across the three clusters in the community study, rates were highest for cluster A, the odd to eccentric at over 7%. Looking at individual personality disorders, the most prevalent was obsessive-compulsive personality disorder at over 4% and least was dependent personality disorder at almost 1%. The research showed that personality disorders in the community at over 12% are therefore just as common as many physical health conditions, with lower back pain at approximately 12% as well. And they're much more prevalent than diabetes and cardiovascular diseases, each at approximately only 3%, or depressive and anxiety disorders, each at 6%. Personality disorders are associated with high comorbidity. This is the simultaneous presence of two or more diseases or conditions in a patient. Personality disorder is also associated with high mortality or death rates. For example, 85% of patients with borderline personality disorder have at least one more mental health or substance use disorder, and 74% have another personality disorder. Increased rates of alcohol and drug abuse, self-harm, suicidal thoughts and behaviours are very common in people with personality disorders. This comorbidity often increases with age. For instance, as an unstable or entitled person finds life isn't delivering what they think it should, other problems often develop, such as depression. For example, they may become more bitter, resentful and nasty in their old age, often lashing out at younger or people seeming more fortunate. So what does a personality disorder look like? I find a large proportion of people present to therapy trying to deal with someone else with a narcissistic personality disorder or with a borderline personality disorder. People are typically dumbfounded by these types of people and often agonise along the following lines. I'm always scared I'm going to be put down or made wrong or rejected. I can't ever do anything right. I feel like I'm always walking on eggshells. I'm always trying to keep the peace and avoid making her angry. I need to fix this relationship. Why doesn't my adult child or my parent want me? Sometimes he seems so normal and we get on fine, which is very confusing. I become hopeful, but I'm always disappointed. It's important to remember that any of us can exhibit some personality disorder traits occasionally. But to meet the criteria of a personality disorder, the traits must be repeatedly observed over different times, places and circumstances. They must cause functional impairment, meaning that they interfere with a person's ability to function well in society, 
They cause problems in interpersonal relationships or at work, school or home. The traits must also cause the person subjective distress, meaning that they find their symptoms to be unwanted, harmful, painful, embarrassing or distressful. Mental health professionals are taught to view aspects of personality on a spectrum or a continuum. So imagine a long horizontal line with categories or buckets at either end. Very normal is the bucket at one end and very abnormal at the other end. Imagine there's a vertical line crossing over this horizontal continuum, right through or right down the centre. I think you'll see how a murderer or a rapist would sit squarely in the very abnormal bucket at the end of this personality spectrum. And how someone you've known for a long time, who's been very reliable, trustworthy and empathetic, would be in the normal bucket at the other end of the spectrum. But what about all the other grey areas between these black and white ends of the spectrum? How can you spot a narcissistic person, for instance? As the continuum implies, personality disorder ranges from low to high levels in many people. That is, people can have traits or aspects of personality disorder that would find them somewhere between normal and abnormal without actually qualifying or crossing that vertical line into a full diagnosis of personality disorder. They may have one or two traits or several. So while a past president of the United States might be a classic narcissist or fit perfectly in cluster B, our family member, friend or boss might not be so clear-cut. Personality disorder doesn't discriminate between social or economic groups or nations. They're found in all walks of life. The personality disorders that most of us encounter as difficult people in our families, friends, work and in the community are in cluster B, the dramatic to emotional. And that's certainly what I've seen in my private practice of 30-odd years. So let's look at this cluster. First, narcissistic people. In Greek mythology, Narcissus was a hunter. He was known for his beauty but rejected all romantic advances. Eventually, he fell in love with his own reflection in a pool of water. He became transfixed and stared at it for the rest of his life. The Diagnostic Statistical Manual 5 says narcissistic personality disorder involves significant impairments in personality functioning. These people have a pervasive and persistent pattern of self-importance and grandiosity with a sense of entitlement. They have a constant need for admiration from others and a need to surround themselves with others who are perceived as powerful and special. Relationships are largely superficial and exist to serve the self-esteem. There's little genuine interest in other people's experiences and a predominant need for personal gain. They have either overt or covert self-centeredness and firmly believe that they are better than others. They're condescending towards others. Antagonism and a lack of empathy are hallmarks of narcissistic personality disorder. But this narcissistic personality diagnostic criteria is currently quite controversial in clinical definitions and discussions. Many researchers argue the current DSM-5 definition is too narrow and may stigmatise aspects of the disorder such as antagonism and lack of empathy that may not be key features in some narcissists. Three major subtypes have been identified with varying degrees of severity and prognosis. 
In fact, the narcissistic personality disorder condition is said to range widely in the severity of how these needs and behaviours function, adding to the confusion about whether the definition and criteria are accurate. Narcissistic personality disorder is one of the most difficult conditions to treat because, by definition, individuals with it believe they're right and they struggle to engage with other viewpoints, even medical professionals. They also struggle with self-reflection, which is required for personal change. In less severe cases, recovery can be possible. I've found this to be more likely when a narcissistic person had a compelling incentive to heal, such as saving a valued job or relationship. While we still don't know what the cause is, some research shows it occurs when parents are either overly protective or neglectful, or when they give excessive adoration or excessive criticism that doesn't match the child's experience. Genetics and neurobiology also may play a role, and narcissistic personality disorders have been found more in males and females. Looking at the three subtypes, probably the most well-known is the grandiose overt type. This type is considered the most severely ill of all narcissists, and they're often called classic narcissists. These people have the most severe inability to function interpersonally and in social situations. They have a higher likelihood of other additional psychiatric disorders, such as other personality disorders and substance abuse. This overt type tends to display more aggression and hostility than other types. These people are less likely than other narcissists to seek, engage and recover in treatment. Extremely severe cases have an additional antisocial personality disorder and are often called malignant or pathological narcissists. This tends to be a combination of internal fragility, aggression and general suspiciousness of those around them. These people are more severely impaired, have worse relationships and are considered largely untreatable. They're manipulative, lack empathy and will do whatever it takes to get what they want. I'll discuss antisocial personality disorder itself later. The next type of narcissist is the fragile, vulnerable or covert type. These people present more often for treatment and tend to have higher comorbidity rates with depression and anxiety disorders. They show fluctuating high and low self-esteem and vulnerability to criticism. Because they usually don't present with obvious grandiosity and a lack of empathy, this narcissistic disorder is harder to detect in these people as a core source of their problems, but over time, underlying traits of superiority and expectations of special treatment or recognition become apparent. Their main preoccupation is with their own sensitivity and perceived failures. This insecurity and manipulation of our attention can be appealing at first because it draws us in, often makes us want to help or protect them. Finally, the third type of narcissist is the high-functioning or exhibitionist type. These people may not necessarily meet the general criterion for the disorder of impaired impersonal and social interactions, except during times of crisis or unexpected failure, like a divorce or a job loss. They present as outwardly successful and personally stable, but they still have a core narcissistic personality disorder a sense of entitlement and self-centeredness, with potential to be exploitative and unempathetic. This type of narcissistic personality is less likely to have additional mental health problems. Keeping these three subtypes in mind, people who are routinely difficult, nasty, cruel and unhappy are most likely to be narcissistic. 
and most likely the grandiose overt type. People with a full narcissistic personality disorder have an inflated sense of their own importance and entitlement, but this masks a fragile sense of self and self-esteem. They're extraordinarily vulnerable and reactive to the slightest criticism. They often attack when feeling criticised or threatened by someone. This is known as the narcissistic insult. It can be extremely painful and shocking to be at the other end of this insult when we have unknowingly triggered it. Because they have secret feelings of shame and humiliation, we can never be sure of what could threaten them. They need excessive attention and admiration. One of the hallmarks of this type is their lack of empathy for others. They have problems in relationships, work and sometimes with finances. They're often generally unhappy and disappointed if they're not given the special attention or admiration they believe they deserve. They tend to develop sycophants in family and work life, people who pander to them for their own safety or other gains. Normal relationships aren't possible with these people. Narcissists of all these subtypes generally may believe they're special and deserve special treatment, for instance being financially supported and not having to work. They can believe they're uniquely talented, brilliant or attractive. Their sense of entitlement can lead them to be fundamentally disregarding and disrespecting of those around them. They're typically preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power and will be jealous of others if this isn't forthcoming to themselves. They may display an attitude that's arrogant and haughty. This can cause conflict with other people who feel exploited or treated in a condescending way. They often feel devastated when they realise they have normal, average human limitations, such as when losing eyesight when ageing, that they're not special, that they believe or others don't admire them as much as they hoped. These realisations often produce intense anger or shame or depression and they'll often lash out or seek revenge. This is an example of them feeling threatened, and then the narcissistic insult that I mentioned earlier. Particularly in the grandiose narcissist, we see their need for power and admiration, combined with their lack of empathy for others. This means relationships can never be real and can only ever be superficial. Real intimacy and caring is not possible for these people. Indeed, attempts to be real with a grandiose narcissist always results in conflict and damage to the other person. Status is very important, so they tend to associate with famous and high-profile people, professions and organisations, giving them a sense of importance, but also a sense of self. There's such a fragile sense of self, it's like a bottomless pit that must constantly be filled. They can quickly shift from over-idealising others to devaluing them. This makes us feel like we're put on a pedestal only to be knocked off in time. They also do this in their own self-judgments, tending to vacillate between thinking they have unlimited abilities and then feeling deflated and worthless when having to face their human limitations. So despite their bravado, people with narcissism, and grandiose narcissism in particular, require much admiration and external affirmation to bolster their fragile sense of self and they can be very manipulative in obtaining this necessary attention from people around them. This is colloquially known as the narcissistic supply, a supply of energy. Imagine a boss who's never happy with your work, a parent who's always finding fault with your school, sport or other grades, no matter how good they are, and even in worst case examples, takes pleasure in upsetting their child or worker about this. A partner who never finds you good enough, a friend who behaves well enough but doesn't seem to care about your feelings or has a robotic response? 
Remembering that personality disorders are viewed in clusters, as I mentioned earlier, and that many traits of different personalities can overlap and be found in one person, the next personality disorders might sound similar in their traits to narcissism. Now let's look at borderline personality disorder. This is one of the most studied personality disorders. The word borderline refers to being on the border between neurotic and psychotic behaviour. Neurotic behaviour is a spontaneous, unconscious effort to manage deep anxiety. Psychotic behaviour comes from abnormal thinking and perceptions. These people have trouble understanding what's real and what's not. Borderline personality disorder is characterised by intense and under-regulated emotions and poor impulse control, making it difficult and damaging to the person and to their relationships. These intense, unstable moods can change very quickly. Once upset, these people generally have a hard time calming themselves down. They often have angry outbursts and engage in impulsive behaviours like binge eating, drug and alcohol abuse, risky sex, self-injury and overspending. These behaviours often help to soothe the person momentarily, but of course harm them in the long term. For example, imagine a young man walking on a footpath down the street. He sees a car parked in a driveway across the path in front of him. He notices two women standing in the driveway talking. His keys are already conveniently in his hand, and as he approaches, he instantly swipes the duco with a long sweep with his key in front of the women. Older studies have reported borderline personality disorder being more prevalent in women than men, but recent studies show a similar occurrence with differences in the way men and women with borderline personality act. Typically, men are more likely to show an explosive temperament and drug and alcohol abuse. Women are more likely to overdose with pharmaceutical drugs, binge eat and harm themselves with cutting. Men are more likely than women to have an additional antisocial personality disorder. People with borderline personality tend to see the world in an oversimplified way. That's with an all or nothing thinking or a black and white thinking. They judge themselves and others harshly, oscillating back and forth quickly between seeing things as all good or all bad. They have an unstable sense of self and they struggle with consistency in normal things like diet and exercise. They often make radical life changes to relationships, life goals, careers and residences, spontaneously and without normal planning. Their tendency to see the world in a polarised or black and white terms means they often misinterpret other people's actions and motivations. As a result, they experience intense emotional reactions to others. And because they find it hard to regulate these emotions, they'll have wild outbursts of behaviour. So people with borderline personality disorder will typically experience great distress, which they can't control, and may then act out in destructive ways as they try to cope. For example, imagine a woman with borderline personality finding her partner forgets her anniversary. She thinks he doesn't love me anymore and then she feels rejected, abandoned, sad or angry, becoming highly upset and overwhelmed. She'll typically have a strong impulse to do something to make the feelings go away. She might accuse her partner of having an affair or plead with them not to leave her. Imagine that a partner is fairly new to this relationship and doesn't understand her borderline personality. He might be confused by this extreme reaction since he's not having an affair and he remembers his recent text showing his love to her. He might become angry by these accusations and the conflict might escalate into a fight. Alone after the fight, this woman will tend to feel overwhelming self-loathing or numbness and may hurt herself by cutting or burning herself in trying to cope with these feelings. 
If her partner hears about this self-harm, he may not understand it and think he's being manipulated. While he may express his sincere concern for her well-being, but also his anger, she will no doubt feel misunderstood by him, which feeds back into her distorted way of thinking. An article published in 2020 shows researchers may be getting closer to understanding the causes of borderline personality. Family studies show that first-degree relatives, meaning siblings, children or parents of people with borderline personality, are very likely to have been treated for borderline personality themselves. Although this suggests that borderline personality runs in families, we still don't know exactly why. There's still the problem of nature versus nurture, that is, how much of each is at play. That's because these relatives don't just share genes, but also environments and households in most situations. Studies of identical twins is a more direct way of assessing the influence of genes, although it's still not perfect. Identical twins have exactly the same genetic makeup. These studies have shown that 42% of variation in borderline personality is caused by genetics, and 58% is caused by other factors, such as the environment. This suggests that borderline personality is fairly strongly related to genetics, but it's still most likely the result of an interaction of the genes with the environment. Importantly, people with borderline personality disorder have long been found to have suffered especially high rates of childhood trauma, including sexual trauma. A meta-analysis published in 2021 reviewed many studies published in the last 20 years to evaluate whether different types of childhood trauma like sexual and physical assault and neglect increased the risk of borderline personality. Studies show that when borderline personality is produced by childhood traumas, there are often many other problems as well, like mood problems, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and problems with eating, dissociation, addictions, and psychosis. In these cases, borderline personality tends to be prolonged, severe, and difficult to treat. Again, these studies show that by comparison with other personality disorders, people with borderline had experienced childhood assault more frequently. We can never, ever overestimate the importance of the early years of life. Adverse childhood experiences affect different biological systems profoundly, including the interaction between the hypothalamus, pituitary gland and adrenal glands, all critical to our normal responses to stress. They affect neurotransmission mechanisms, endogenous opioid systems, and even the brain. It's grey matter volume, white matter connectivity. All these changes to bodies and brains from childhood trauma persist into adulthood and are lifelong. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a brain injury. Borderline personality disorder is often confused with bipolar disorder. So what's the difference? Both are mental health disorders, but borderline personality is a personality disorder and bipolar a mood disorder. These are separate and different mental health disorders, and to make matter more complicated, some people have both. The mood disorder of bipolar is characterised by alternating periods of depressed mood with manic or hypermanic mood, that's elevated, expansive mood. So bipolar mood swings from euphoric highs to depressed lows and can look very similar to the extreme mood changes in people diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Both borderline personality and bipolar disorders show significant problems with impulsivity and this often leads to the same risky behaviours of overspending, shoplifting, gambling, drug and alcohol abuse and sexual risk. 
Generally, borderline personality tends to occur in reaction to something that happens, like an interpersonal conflict, and to last for hours, whereas the depressed or manic moods of the bipolar disorder are not typically related to an event and usually lasts days or weeks. It's best to leave the job of teasing apart these two diagnoses to experienced professionals. Let's consider people with another personality disorder, histrionic. These people have a pattern of excessive emotionality and attention-seeking. Their lives are full of drama. They're often called drama queens. They're uncomfortable in situations where they're not the centre of attention. They tend to be flirtatious or seductive and dress in ways that draw attention to themselves. They may be flamboyant and theatrical, expressing exaggerated emotions. But their emotional expression is typically shallow, vague and lacking in detail. They appear disingenuous and insecure. Their drama and exaggerated expression often embarrasses other people with their excessive ardour or sentimentality. They can appear flighty and fickle. Their behaviour often makes truly intimate relationships impossible. They often imagine the relationship is more close than it actually is. They tend to be easily influenced by other people's suggestions and opinions. Finally, let's look at antisocial personality disorder, which we touched on before in its links sometimes with narcissistic personality. Antisocial personality disorder is characterised by a pervasive pattern of disregard for the rights of other people that often manifests in hostility and or aggression. Deceit and manipulation are also central features. They use or exploit others for personal gain or pleasure. They have an extreme need for power and usually perform acts of revenge against anyone who criticises them. In many cases, people with antisocial personality first display hostile, aggressive and deceitful behaviours during childhood with other children or animals. They show reckless disregard for others and often place themselves in dangerous or risky situations. They frequently act on impulsive urges without considering the consequences. They typically don't experience genuine remorse for the harm they cause others, but they can be very good at feigning remorse when it's in their best interest to do so, such as when standing before a judge in court. They avoid taking responsibility for their actions, and they often blame their victim for causing their wrong actions or deserving their fate. These people are so aggressive that they tend to stand out among other personality disorders and take an obvious toll on society with their crimes. Like other personality disorders, antisocial personality is on a spectrum, which means it can range in severity from occasional bad behaviour to repeatedly breaking the law and committing serious crimes. Sociopaths and psychopaths are common in formal terms for antisocial personality disorder. Psychopaths are usually deemed more dangerous than sociopaths because they have the least conscience, empathy and remorse. Both can follow societal norms and rules if it serves their needs. Let's look more deeply at how personality disorders develop. Research from the American Psychological Association suggests that genetics, childhood abuse, parenting and peer influences contribute to the development of personality disorders. In terms of genetics, some personality disorders have been studied more than others and show there may be more genetic predisposition than we used to think. One team has identified a malfunctioning gene that may be a factor in obsessive-compulsive disorder. Other researchers are exploring genetic links to aggression, anxiety and fear, traits that can play a role in personality disorders. 
In terms of childhood trauma, findings from one of the largest studies in personality disorders, the Collaborative Longitudinal Personality Disorders Study, found a link between the number and type of childhood traumas and the development of personality disorders. People with borderline personality, for example, had an especially high rate of childhood sexual trauma. In terms of verbal abuse, in a study of 793 mothers and children, researchers asked mothers if they'd screamed at their children, told them they didn't love them, or threatened to send them away. Children who'd experienced verbal abuse were three times as likely as other children to have borderline narcissistic, obsessive-compulsive or paranoid personality disorders by adulthood. High reactivity has also been linked with personality disorder. Sensitivity to light, noise, texture and other stimuli may play a role. Overly sensitive children who have what researchers call high reactivity are more likely to develop shy, timid or anxious personalities. Research shows that some basic neural pathways are set very early in childhood that determine how we interpret the world. For instance, a study in 2021 examined empathy deficits in toddlerhood, age 14 to 36 months, and found this early disregard for others predicted later antisocial personality disorder in adulthood. If a child's been either overly protected or the opposite neglected by its carers, this prevents a normal process of separation, individuation, or separating gradually and finding a sense of individuality away from the carer. The child may be unable to develop a normal, unified sense of self. The resulting ununified sense of self is thought to be left with an underlying sense of loss and incompletion or imperfection. By adulthood, we see a tension in the person who has a sense of a real self versus an ideal self. They often swing between desiring a reunion with the now idealised others or displaying defence mechanisms of grandiosity and autonomy. This can be seen as a splitting off of the self. Often overt success will hide covert problems of self-esteem and cognition. The result is a vulnerable self-esteem with varying experiences of shame and guilt and defensive adaptive elements. It may be possible to resolve the potential personality disorder in childhood or early adulthood. By the early 30s, our personality is typically formed and it becomes much harder to change. From about age 30, a diagnosis of personality disorder can be quite confidently made. From then onwards, if there's been no therapeutic intervention, ageing and life experience doesn't automatically correct a personality disorder. These people don't become wiser in their personalities. In fact, many will get worse or develop additional mental health problems. An 80-year-old can still have a deluded personality, while an 18-year-old with a normal personality may see straight through the delusions. So how can we navigate these people successfully? We often find ourselves forced to deal with that most difficult person, whether a family member, friend, work colleague, in order to stay in our family, job or friendship group. It's the people with personality disorders on cluster B, the dramatic emotional, that tend to cause the most problems for other people, and particularly those with narcissistic personalities. Freeing ourselves from the entrapment and hurt from a narcissist is truly liberating and empowering. Recently, I had lunch with one of my oldest friends. We found ourselves reminiscing about the people with narcissistic personalities who'd made our lives so difficult and painful as children and young adults. 
Soon we were roaring with laughter as we reminded ourselves of the bizarre and often quite mad things these people had said and done. While we now feel compassion for these people, as my friend said, you just have to laugh or it makes you feel like you're the mad one. This is a far cry from the many years we'd spent feeling tortured, griping and trying to understand the cruelty of these disordered people. How stark the contrast is now. We're both free of the angst and pain, seeing the disorders clearly and easily able to deal with these types of people anywhere in the world. The first key in any psychological recovery is understanding. In fact, psychological pain is in proportion to a lack of understanding. As we understand what we're dealing with, the pain starts to lift. So taking the time to learn about what you may be dealing with is critical. The final healing and freedom comes from acceptance and detachment. Once we understand the personality disorder, accept it and detach emotionally, we're free. My way of explaining narcissistic personality disorder is to imagine that one's sense of self is a castle. This castle is either built well and whole or in ruins from about age three because of that lack of normal bond with the parent. The person with narcissistic personality retreats to the fortress around the castle and lives there in an adapted sense of self built on image, power or success. If anyone tries to encourage the person back to the castle, they will fight, attack and insult to avoid this. To deal with a classic narcissist, we must accept they can never change and in fact are a victim of their own circumstances. This doesn't excuse their bad behaviour, but it can help to explain it and for us to navigate it. What are the warning signs we might be dealing with a personality disorder? Remember that rigidity or being stuck is a hallmark of personality disorder. As soon as we sense rigidity in a person or that they're severely stuck in one area of their life, take a step back emotionally as it's a warning sign you may be dealing with a personality disorder. Particularly with narcissists, remember, they lack empathy. They're always right and can't tolerate challenge. Males often initially present as leaders or charismatic and become aggressive when challenged. Females often present as martyrs or needy who become rigid, aggressive or victims when challenged. They're entitled, often enraged and manipulative. They often lie, cheat and argue. We often feel confused, conflicted, frustrated and guilty when trying to deal with them. If you feel you're being put on a pedestal, remember, you will always be knocked off eventually. Always feeling wrong around this person, finding this person is a constant victim, it's always someone else's fault. They can show sympathy if it serves their needs, and that's easy to feign, and very different from empathy. Empathy is when we feel people truly understand, connect with, and care about our pain or joy. Feeling drained after being around these people, they're often called energy vampires, and the energy is known as the narcissistic supply. They seem to blow with the wind, meaning they can contradict themselves even mid-sentence. It's always about whatever serves them in the moment. They often make us feel and wonder if we're mad. Finally, that narcissistic insult I mentioned earlier, when seemingly out of nowhere we find ourselves attacked or insulted. This is probably a sign you've threatened a narcissist's fragile sense of self in some way. If we've had a parent with a narcissistic personality, or the opposite, if we've never encountered bullies or difficult people as children, we'll typically struggle with these people in our adult life. This is because we've either been wounded by difficult people or we've never experienced them, and either way, we've never learnt to deal with them. Any charge of personal emotion we feel in interactions with people such as pain, humiliation, anger or deep frustration and confusion shows us we're most likely dealing with a person with a personality disorder. 
A quick way to help identify this is to ask ourselves, who does this remind me of? If a parent or other bully comes to mind, this can be helpful. If not, we can be sure this is not usual and may therefore be abnormal. It's usually deeply distressing to acknowledge that someone we've been close to has a personality disorder. When it's a family member, it's often even harder. People ask, how can my mother have a personality disorder or my adult child? In these cases, I usually find there's evidence of personality disorder in older members of the family that may have contributed genetically to the person we're trying to understand. People are often shocked to find themselves well into adulthood and still fighting with a parent who they think should know better or with whom they're still trying to get approval. There's a deep-seated hope and yearning that one day, surely, an ageing parent will see the light, snap out of their rigidity and be the parent we've always wanted. So what are the stages of realising and dealing with difficult people? I've identified the following stages. In the first stage, we may feel a range of disempowerment. From passive to aggressive, we may suffer, go along with, adapt too much to fit in, appease or fight and be in constant conflict. In the second stage, we're awakening to something being wrong, bad or too hard to deal with in this person. We try to understand and try to make sense and yet we can't because it doesn't make sense in a normal person's mind. We start to feel frustrated and try to work around the person or try to break free. We may feel fight or flight feelings or freeze feelings. In the third stage, we ideally look at our part in this entanglement. We take ownership for our own blind spot that led us to be in this relationship or still in it. We may realise we were born into and find ourselves in this bind as a family member. Be it personal, work or other relationship, this is typically a supercharged phase of the connection with such a person. In the fourth stage, we realise we need to learn how to detach from these people and from other people we will meet with personality disorders. It helps to go back into any childhood attachment, for instance, to a parent and realise this emotional charge or attachment comes from that. We often feel that it's bad or wrong to detach. We may feel guilty. It isn't wrong. It's just different. It's change. In the fifth stage, we find ourselves being able to deal with these people in a transactional or superficial way. And this is all that's possible with these types of people. It's critical to remember that a normal relationship is not possible with an abnormal person. That the person may be your mother or brother doesn't necessarily mean they're normal. Most of us assume they are and try to explain away the abnormalities by saying, he's an angry guy, she's eccentric. I gave an exercise in my first book for this. Imagine you're at a party or a barbecue and you meet this person, this mother or brother, as a stranger for the first time and then get to know them and see their interactions with others and yourself. What would you think of them? Would you have much in common? Would you want to be friends? This can be a reality check, but for a true check, seek advice from a psychologist. So to deal with narcissists strategically, I offer some analogies. One is of an iron fist in a velvet glove. When dealing with them, be totally tough and without them realising, soon you'll be running rings around them because while you're totally tough, you're being superficial, detached, and that is the velvet. They're often like two-year-olds throwing temper tantrums while they may be in a body of a 50-year-old. Pick your fights, you can't win all of them, so just pick the important ones, the ones that are important to you, and use these strategies. They're like puppies, they will spew or piddle, abuse. We call this emotional vomit or incontinence in psychology, and they'll chew your best shoes or what's most important to you. So quarantine and don't share your most precious information with them, or they will try to destroy it. At first, I suggest treading lightly. Once you've got the hang of dealing with a narcissist, you'll be able to disarm them and say true things that go straight under their defence mechanisms. 
When we get to this stage, it's like mastering anything in life. It's easy, automatic and known as a fluid skill. Words just come out of our mouths subconsciously at the right time and in the right way to disarm the narcissist. We are energetically in charge and able to judge the situation and make the right call. It's the ultimate empowerment. So to start with, avoid threatening their territory, that is, them, and what they care about or believe in. Avoid seeming to disagree up front, or they will take it as a challenge or threat, and they will attack or insult. Use light and breezy or positive terms and manners because they're non-threatening. We need to lead versus asking from them what's appropriate. If it's not on your terms, it won't be sustainable and healthy for you. For instance, set boundaries. 20 minutes is a good maximum amount of time to spend with these people one-on-one. We can't control, but we can see if we can learn to deal with these people so they're less likely to reject or insult us. Often people say to me, I don't have to deal with this, but I want to see if it's possible or what's possible or to get closure. I can only do my part and see what happens. The rest will be on the other person. A good relationship might look very different to what we've hoped for because these people can't do normal relationships, even though they often show glimpses that they might. Recognise our relationship with this person has never been normal. Decide on responses if the person attacks and in advance practice rolling them out. These are to deflect, disarm and stop the narcissist in their tracks. Then change the subject quickly to what you want to focus on or back to them and what they care about or believe in. This can end up being quite a healthy discussion or debate when managed well. Silence is consent. So it's important for our self-respect that we do say something. Try phrases that mean nothing other than to yourself and don't overtly disagree with a narcissist, but that brush off any insult or help you protect yourself. Like, yeah, you get that, don't you? Or, how about that? Or, yeah, there you go. And to yourself, the subtext might be, again, you may be right. And again, to yourself, or you may be wrong. So where to next and what about treatment? Diagnosing personality disorders is difficult enough even for experienced health professionals. I caution you against trying to diagnose yourself or others, particularly just from this podcast. The more traits of personality disorder people have, the harder they are to help, but many of these people can be helped. Narcissistic people in particular rarely enter counselling, rather the people in relationships with them do, as they suffer in trying to relate with these abnormal people who may be parents, friends, bosses, neighbours. If you suspect... You're dealing with a personality disorder in yourself or someone else. Seek help from a psychologist as soon as possible to reduce any risk factors and help alleviate your symptoms. Psychologists are highly trained and qualified to make a correct diagnosis. They will be able to recommend an effective treatment plan. Psychological interventions for this include counselling, cognitive behavioural therapy and dialectical behavioural therapy. Sometimes medication is also needed depending on the type of personality disorder and any other comorbid mental health or mood problems. In these situations, a GP or a psychiatrist may also be involved in the treatment. To locate a psychologist in your area, call the Australian Psychological Society and locate Find a Psychologist Service on 1800 33497 or visit www.findapsychologist.org.au Your GP can also organise a referral to a psychologist experienced in working with personality disorder problems. Check with your GP whether you qualify for a mental health treatment plan and a rebate to see a psychologist or are eligible for reduced rates. 
For urgent help, or if you or someone you know is in crisis, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me.